Welcome to episode 2101 of Effectively Wild, a Fangraphs baseball podcast brought to you by our Patreon supporters. I'm Meg Rowley of Fangraphs, and I'm joined by Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer. Ben, how are you? I'm doing all right. I'm kind of enjoying our little lull in transactions the past few days. Not a league-mandated lull like the NHL has and you wish MLB had, but a natural lull. I came to to learn of this uh, NHL transaction freeze via Emma Bachelary, who I believe learned about it from a an NHL writer named Frank Suravali. Suravali? Frank? So sorry <laughs> if I'm saying your name wrong. And uh, it inspired me to think about how, like, hockey is a sport where, like, dudes can fight each other. Mm-hmm. A little bit. They're allowed to fight a little bit. They're not allowed to, like, yeah. r- really fight anymore. Less like, than they used to. Yeah, yeah the brawling has um, come down to a um, what I imagine they understand to be, like, a therapeutic level. <laughs> But despite that, despite a sport that allows for fighting, what civility they show, you know, what respect of each other's time. I know that the knock-on effects this has for their media members probably not top of the list for them in, in doing <laughs> it. But I think this is this is a nice, this is so nice, Ben. You know, it's like mm-hmm. everybody likes their their little jobs. They're grateful for their little jobs. I think we get to do very cool jobs uh, in in this space, but it's nice to rest also and to not make your mom mad, as I mentioned last episode. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, these some of these guys, um, they, they seem to have a, how do I want to put this neutrally, like an indifference to the season um, and the potential effects it has on um, the people involved directly and also th- their loved ones. And so I think it would be nice if we had a league mandated period of rest and we could build in exceptions as needed, although we would require fewer of them than the NHL yeah. does because we're not in season. Right. But right. like, if you wanted to say like these days don't count against international players posting timeline, for instance, like I could imagine needing to build some of that in um, because you don't want Yamamoto to be, you know, to get short shrift or to feel rushed in his decision making because suddenly this transaction freeze counts against his posting days. Like we're, we're, you know, we're accommodating sorts, but I think we should do this. And it's funny to me, like they should just extend it to, to January 2nd, they could start it later for baseball. They could say like Friday, starting Friday, you know, tomorrow, the 21st, that's your, that's your day. No, no more tr- transactions after Thursday and then extend it through January 1st and then get back to business on the 2nd. How civilized. Yeah. It's particularly impressive because it's not the off season for right? the NHL. Right? Yeah. I mean, yeah. there's really no downside to doing this for yeah. MLB because None. we've got all the time in the world. So you know, you time. can make your moves in early January or mid-December yeah. instead. But in hockey, there is hockey going on. Hockey players are hockeying right now. Hockeying. And there might have to be moves. <laughs> Apparently, there are emergency exceptions so that you can make a move. And I was curious, what are the emergency ef- exceptions? Apparently, it's like if someone gets hurt or someone right. gets sick or something, you right. you can, if you can't field a, a full a team, team. Yeah. rink a full team. <laughs> rink then... a full team is absolutely, rink is not the verb, I think. <laughs> no, I think it I think is probably. But <laughs> is it ice a full team? No, but icing is a thing in hockey. Uh, icing 
kickers you could do. You, yeah, you can also, can, there are also I, icing rules. Yeah, in hockey, it's true. But <laughs> whatever the verb is, if you can't do that, if you don't have enough players, then there are emergency conditions where you can get more players on there. So they have thought of that at least. But yeah, they're, they're setting an impressive example here. Even in the midst of a season, they're saying some things take precedence. And maybe that is very different from the fighting, but maybe it's sort of similar to the fighting because at least traditionally, when there was a hockey fight, uh-huh. they really would just set some time aside to resolve their differences and everyone else yeah. would just go about their business and be like, yeah. okay, I thought I was watching hockey. Now this is a boxing match. Now I'm, <laughs> I'm watching fighting. Yep. And they will just settle this and we'll let them do that for a while. And then eventually we'll get back to the hockey. But certain things take precedence. And apparently the holidays do for the NHL holidays and punching people, though less of the punching people now. Yeah, I like this. I think we should acknowledge that we are sometimes inclined as human beings to inconvenience ourselves and others. And it is good to have architecture in place to intervene on that instinct because you feel bad about it afterward. I mean, I doubt Preller has ever felt bad about it, like candidly. And I I don't really mean that as a knock on AJ necessarily. I mean, I do, but like in a less pointed way than it maybe sounds. But, you know, it would be good to just say like, hey, hey, man, just take a day to rest or play pick up basketball or go get a big golf or something. We all needed a bit of a breather after the Soto news and the Otani news and everything else, the many Otani news cycles. And it's not that there have been no new moves. I don't want to slight Martin Perez and Andrew McCutcheon and Tom Murphy and Eric Haas, but I, I don't have deep thoughts about any of them at the moment. And so I will not attempt to generate any. We have plenty of emails to answer and I have some step blasts to do too. Step blasts. So we will get to that. We haven't had yeah. a whole lot of email time lately with all the news that we've had to discuss. Busy, busy. Yeah. I will tease or entreat people to send us submissions. I like to, at the end of a year, the very last episode or two, go over stories that we missed. Mm-hmm. And ideally, we try to find one story that we missed for each team so that everyone feels represented or at least equally neglected. So if there's something that we didn't talk about this season or this year, and I know that no one remembers every single thing we talked sure. about on this podcast this year, including us. But if you don't recall us talking about something in particular for your team, or someone else's team that you thought was interesting. Maybe it was a weird statistical season or it was some funny off the field occurrence or a quote or something wacky or whatever it was, a fun fact. It could be anything. But if we gave it short shrift on Effectively Wild, let us know and we'll compile some submissions and hopefully have one for each team or most teams at least before the end of the year. Figured I'd mention that now because I know not everyone listens to the very end of the episode. But I have some emails, and only some of them are Shohei Otani related. In fact, very (laughs) few of them. I I steered away from Shohei, which is not normally my inclination. I steer into the skid when it comes to Shohei. But today, I figured we'll give people a bit of a breather from Otani. But but this question is not really about Otani, but it is prompted by Otani. So that's the best I can do. And I didn't send in this question. Other people Uh sent it in. What can I do? Uh We just answer the questions that we receive. Uh Alex, Patreon supporter, says... The news about Shohei Otani's role in the ongoing Tyler Glasnow trade extension, I guess it's no longer ongoing, but was when he sent this email, got me thinking about past instances when players have been accused of tampering violations. Most notably, 
Bryce Harper following public comments about wanting Mike Trout as a teammate, Mm -hmm. though there are other examples. It then dawned on me that I have essentially zero understanding of what the terms tampering and recruiting even mean in MLB. Mm. Is it even correct to think of recruiting as being generally acceptable and tampering as being some unusual kind of recruitment that violates one or more MLB policies? Are there clearly delineated situations in which recruiting becomes tampering? Mm. Perhaps I'm also being misled by an underlying assumption that Otani, being the immaculate professional he is, could never violate a relatively inconsequential MLB policy, adherence to which is probably poorly incentivized to begin with, if such a policy even still exists within the new CBA. Any light you'd be able to shed upon these nebulous concepts would be appreciated. So I don't think the CBA itself covers tampering, at least when I control F'd the CBA a second yeah. ago, <laughs> nothing came up. However, there is a rule book, rules book, not the rule book, but the major yeah. league rules yes. that you can find hosted on the Players Association uh-huh. site, the official professional baseball rules yeah. book. Yeah. Um, I know you're fond of this one. Oh, it's I am like so the, fond of it. It's then. like the secret rule book, the insider it's the secret rule, rule book. book. <laughs> yeah. I, although I will admit to, to ignorance about what it says with regard to tampering. So I'm mm-hmm. excited to learn something about the, you know, double secret probation rule yeah. book. Yeah. yeah. Let me enlighten you. So this is rule 3K. These are the 2021 rules, but I'm guessing that this probably hasn't changed. Tampering to preserve discipline and competition and mm-hmm. to prevent the enticement of players, coaches, managers, and umpires. Yes. There shall be no negotiations or dealings respecting employment, either present or prospective, between any player, coach, or manager, and any major or minor league club other than the club with which the player is under contract or acceptance of terms or by which the player is reserved or which has the player on its negotiation list. These rule books are always just so well written. It really just rolls off the tongue. Or between any umpire and any baseball employer other than the baseball employer with which yeah. the umpire is under contract. Yeah. Or acceptance of terms unless the club or baseball employer with which the person is connected <laughs> shall have in writing expressly authorized such negotiations or dealings prior to their commencement. Oh, <laughs> so, I don't know if that enlightened anyone. You probably need the plain English version of that a lot of with witches in with that witch. paragraph yeah but basically what it means is that you can't ask another player or tell another player to come play for your team while they're under contract with another team mm-hmm. now Tyler Glass now was in sort of a special situation here where right. I guess technically he was still a Ray, but he was in the process of being traded to the Dodgers. Right. The The Rays clearly wanted him to be yes. a Dodger. And yes. all they had to do was work out the extension. And so Shohei yeah. sent him a video saying, hey, I want to hit some home runs for you and then we can pitch together in 2025. Yeah. And of course, Glass now was pretty pumped to get a message from Shohei Otani and it was yeah. like, Yep, that recruiting pitch worked. <laughs> it would work on me too. But that's a special situation sure. because at that point he was like in a liminal space where he was sort of a Ray, but he was about to be a Dodger. Like mm-hmm. both teams wanted him to be a Dodger. And so the Rays weren't going to be upset about Shohei Otani trying to recruit him and persuade him to be a Dodger. That is not always the case, though. So there have been times when players have run afoul of these rules. And the one that was mentioned in the question 
2019 in March, Bryce Harper was being pretty open about wanting Mike Trout to be on the Phillies. Yeah. And he said as much multiple times and in yeah. multiple ways. And he got in a little bit of trouble for it. A little bit. Big trouble. Just, you know, slap trouble. on the wrist. He probably trouble. got a memo. Probably someone it's spoke medium to him. trouble. Yeah. So he said on a sports radio station, if you don't think I'm going to call Mike Trout to come to Philly in 2020, you're crazy. And then also he said in a press conference, I think, that he kind of obliquely referred to him. He said that his own deal, which he described as club friendly, left the Phillies room to add other players. And he said, I know there's another guy in about two years who comes off the books. We'll see what happens with him. Mm. And then he named him in another comment. He said, for me... Mm. I can be able to talk to Trout or whoever it is, big name free agent or whoever wants to come to Philly or is thinking about coming to Philly. I can say, hey, this is the place to be. This is where the fans are great. Ownership understands it. Our manager is awesome. Can't do that, Bryce. No. I also love that you're out here using a liminal space. You're like a TikTok teen. <laughs> um, they're, they're really into liminal spaces I right hear on TikTok. Yeah. It's like a really funny bit of manners regulation to me mm-hmm. because – one could argue that everything that a team does to try to improve the on-field product, particularly if it involves signing big free agents, is a plea for others to come to the team, right? They are making a case for the desirability of that place as a place to play. And it is only in the making it explicit that we get kind of surety about it, right? It's like signing Bryce, it's not tampering, but it is inducement or an attempt to, right? Like you do that because you want people to think your team is going to be really good and you probably know that it makes it attractive to other free agents. Mm -hmm. And I'm not saying that it's wrong. Like I think that clubs need to be able to have some amount of stability and, you know, there is something to the idea of them having like a period where they get to engage with their players one-on-one, I guess. But I also kind of think like people should get to kind of decide where they work. And so the idea that this is like meaningfully a problem for clubs is something I'm not necessarily super sympathetic to either. Does that seem unfair to you? Like, are you, what, what, are, what do you think about the, no, the think morality of tampering? Yeah. <laughs> Maybe it's different if an executive is doing it than if a player is doing it. But yeah. even so, I don't know, I guess it would lead to some ruffled feathers and bad blood because it's kind of like, you know, someone's flirting with your player while they're going steady with you. (laughs) And so it could lead to uh, a war of words. At that time, when Harper made his comments about Trout, Billy Epler, who was then the Angels GM, said that he was aware of the comments and, quote, we've been in touch with MLB and we have no further comment at this time. But so, like, here's here's the thing, though. Like, Trout is still under contract in this scenario, right? Mm -hmm. So it's like, what does the tampering, quote unquote, really do? Like, what difference does it make materially to the angels? You know, it's not like Trout's going to be like, oh, Bryce is right. I guess I'm going over there now. Like, he had a contract in place. So I guess I'm always a little um, kind of flummoxed by, like, what is the theory of of the case here in terms of it being a problem. You know what I mean? 
maybe there's a fear that it would lead to something like the NBA's player empowerment era. I know oh, the NBA no, we can't have has <laughs> their mixed opinions on whether sure. that's been good or bad. And the NBA has tampering rules too, but there is a lot of, hey, let's get together and we'll make a super team and players trying to engineer where they're going to go, which, hey, if they can do that and they have the leverage, fine. Yeah. But also, I guess it gets taken to an extreme at times where players are just constantly jumping ship, or at least the perception yeah. is that they're forcing themselves out of any situation that isn't the best for them and just trying to arrange exactly what they want, you know, the way I that guess. most of us do <laughs> with right. our employment, where we right. are, are at least eligible to work right. wherever, which doesn't mean that anywhere will hire us, but at least we have the right to work wherever. But right. If you had something similar in baseball, maybe it would be good. Maybe it would be bad in some ways. I don't know. If that were kind of the culture, if it were just constant like, hey, come play with us. And I guess there's nothing to prevent players from texting each other about this right. or doing it behind the scenes in a non-public way unless the other player is going to snitch and rat them out. Yeah. Someone tampered. He, he sent me a, he texted me a tamper. You got to do something. Then it would never really come to light. But players have been reprimanded and even fined. Yeah. There was uh, <laughs> there was a situation in 2016 with David Ortiz. I think this was at the All-Star game. He was talking about how he wanted the Red Sox to trade for sign people. He mentioned Edwin Encarnacion specifically, who was going to be a free agent after that season. And I guess Poppy said that he would be a good replacement for him, for David mm. Ortiz. And <laughs> when he was People asked about this... All out, of, all out of sorts about it. Yeah. Ortiz said, tampering? I don't write no paycheck. I can say whatever <laughs> I want. I'm not a GM or team owner or whatever. I mean, if I say tomorrow that I want to play with LeBron James, is that tampering too? Well, no, unless LeBron James is employed by a Major League Baseball team, in which case it probably would be. <laughs> it's a yeah. different sport, which makes a material difference. But he is saying something sort of similar to what you're saying, I guess. Yeah. Like, what real impact does it have if right. a player says, hey, come play with me years down the road? Obviously, this pitch did not work on Mike Trout, who is not a Philly. Didn't. Not at the moment. Yeah. Mm -hmm. mm, yeah. No. I just think the whole thing is kind of goofy i mean like and it's also it feels like th sometimes guys are allowed to flirt with the flirting mm -hmm. pretty profoundly like you know how we always just felt like we knew where david stearns was gonna go work you know mm -hmm. like we yeah. just felt like we had a really good sense of that and the reason we had a good sense of it was because of all of the like leaking that got done on background about the interest in David Stearns. And the reason they did the leaking on background is because they didn't want to run afoul of anti-tampering measures, but we still knew where he was probably going to go work. So like, is that a distinction with a material difference? I ask you, Ben, it's anti-labor. I tell you what. Yeah, <laughs> I guess most of professional sports is in some ways. Although yeah, obviously if that? you make it to the majors, uh, you're doing yeah, decently okay. salary wise. But yeah, you're doing okay. I guess ostensibly maybe it's supposed to promote parity because you want players to stay with the teams that took them like you wouldn't want I mean you know if you had the Yankees uh, owner coming out and saying like come play for us we'll pay you more money or you know if it, right. if it became a bidding war even 
when it wasn't the offseason or when a player wasn't available and players just kind of had one foot out the door because they were like getting offers constantly kind of maybe there would be an excess of turnover or at least fans would see it that way so maybe that's the idea behind it at least but yeah I don't know that it actually has that huge an impact yeah, I, I don't. But I did learn something new today, which is um, about my favorite super secret rule book. So yeah. I feel like I'm grateful for the opportunity to contemplate the question. Mm-hmm. Wasn't there a there was a Judge Machado? I think it was it was a few years ago. It was 2018. Aaron Judge told yeah. Manny Machado that Machado would look good in pinstripes. Yeah. <laughs> and and that was too much. That was yeah. tampering potentially. Judge got potentially. a warning from the He got MLB a little warning. About and, that. Uh, and I hope he said everybody looks good in pinstripes. They're, you know, they make you look taller. They make <laughs> you look taller. Not that Aaron Judge needs to look taller. I know, but Manny Machado could stand too, you know, like he's not a small guy, but he's not as big as Judge. Maybe that's all he meant, you know, and it's so funny because he ended up going to a team that does play in pinstripes, just not that one, you know, like if Mm -hmm. I were Aaron Judge, I'd be like, this describes like a bunch of different teams. There's so many, you know, like the Cubs wear pinstripes and also at this point, the Padres, although I don't know if they had those uniforms back in their um, rack at the time um just a general statement about what would be flattering to him like sartorial sartorial that's a hard word sartorially there you go yeah (laughs) like that that. definitely wasn't how you say it no i can spell it sartorially there we go okay i am not convinced that i can spell it yeah this is rarely punished or policed though because again it would be so difficult to crack down on it private conversations so in in that case like Judge was kind of kidding. It was a lighthearted comment. And so the league at the time said, we have been in contact with the Yankees. They communicated to us that Mr. Judge's off the cuff comments were not appropriate and not authorized by the club. They will speak to him to make sure that this does not happen again. <laughs> so it's very it's much. Like, it's like so much more email than anyone needs to yeah, send on this question. It's like Give him a good talking to just yeah. s- sit Aaron down. Now, Aaron, just make him take a time out in the corner for a while because he tampered <laughs> on Potentially tampered. Again, like I can appreciate why this is annoying to teams. Like I think you want to be able to say we know what our team is going to be and we don't want people are already coming for our like talented front office folks. But like you can just say no. That's the other thing. Like they have so much discretion that I feel like they are already sufficiently empowered on this stuff. Um, And so I think that we should abolish the rules and also unionize front offices while we're at it. (laughs) <laughs> Holidays, everybody gets a present. <laughs> sure. Yeah. I forgot about a maybe even more famous instance of Bryce Harper potential tampering, which was in 2012. Do you remember when he tweeted at John Carl Stanton? You can mm. always play for the Nats. This was when Stanton was with the Marlins. We will take you anytime. Get some red, white, and blue yes. in your life. And then Stanton actually had a good comeback. He wrote back, dang, bro, if only my last name backwards wasn't not Nats, <laughs> which was actually kind of clever. Yeah, it was It was quite clever, I, yeah. I think. I wonder, I wonder if he wants that back, though. Yeah. <laughs> 
yeah. Well, I wonder if he, he wrote that or maybe he had a social media person <gasps> suggest that to him. Eh, I, I don't want to denigrate his, yeah, his Twitter Yeah, why game. are we impugning his his joking abilities? He doesn't, well, at know. times we've impugned baseball players and how funny they are, or at least Stan Miller sure. has. <laughs> so, That's true. But this is uh, an instance of uh, actually made me chuckle at the time. Yeah. Okay. Next okay. question comes from Jacob, Patreon supporter, also Otani inspired, but mm-hmm. not directly Otani related. I'm an Angels fan and expect the team will be unwatchably bad for years without Otani. I will have reason. I will have little reason to watch even occasional games. Is my favorite player going to the Dodgers an acceptable reason to become a Dodgers fan? I rooted for Japan against USA in the WPC, so this sort of happened before. Mm-hmm. I agree with you both that it's wrong to criticize Otani for, quote-unquote, taking the easy way out, but it's hard to shake that feeling about myself. When is it respectable to jump ship as a fan? By the way, I checked the listener email database, always appreciated, Jacob, and found one question touching on this issue from Jason in episode 1053, would you continue rooting for your doomed team? That was a thousand episodes ago with Jeff as co-host, so I think it is fair game. And we have bantered a bit more recently about whether you can or should switch allegiances, and this is sort of along the same lines. I mean, the Angels, I don't know if any team is truly doomed, but things certainly look gloomy, if not doomy, for the Angels even more so than they have. So if Jacob wants to defect and say, I'm a Dodgers fan now, or at least I'm watching the Dodgers and not watching the Angels, should he? Should he feel any twinge of guilt about that? No, not yeah. <laughs> not even a twinge, not even a glimmer, not even a, you don't have to look backward, you know, move forward. I think that um, fandom is a lot of things. It can be fun. It can be frustrating. It can be, you know, something that binds you to a community. It can be a source of commonality with your family. But I think most basically it is often arbitrary, right? Why am I a Seahawks fan? Because I grew up in Seattle, you know, Mm -hmm. like my, my, uh, my grandparents, uh, great grandparents on my mom's side, they were Broncos season ticket holders. And do I have an allegiance to the Broncos? I sure do not. You know, I'm a Seahawks fan because I grew up there. I'm a Mariners fan because I grew up in Seattle. Um, I enjoy watching the Arizona Coyotes, even though I voted against funding their stadium because I live in, uh, I live in Tempe and the place is like 10 minutes from my house, you know? And so it's all kind of an arbitrary bit of business. And I think that you will want a way for yourself if it meets the emotional requirements of fandom for you in other ways, right? Like is baseball something that you do come together with, with family or friends is, you know, sort of jumping to the Dodgers um, going to result in severing some of that connection. Is that going to bother you? Are you able to just like sustain fandom for multiple teams? Does that feel natural to you? Like, I think that there are, there are aspects to the decision that you should consider for what it means for you. But, you know, saying that you have to like one team over another because it's the one you've liked in the past doesn't resonate for me. You know, mm-hmm. I think that that's a pretty fundamentally arbitrary thing more often than not. Um, and so if you have a compelling reason to jump to another team and it's going to satisfy what sports fandom 
often does for us, for you, then yeah, good. have fun. You're about to watch some really great baseball a lot of the time, I think. Um, I might require that you be as annoyed by Joe Kelly as Craig Goldstein is, <laughs> just to like balance the scales a little bit cosmically. But mm-hmm. I think that if Otani's your dude and watching him and rooting for his team to succeed brings you joy, then I say congratulations on being a Dodger fan, you know? Yeah, you don't have to be a Dodgers fan to continue to watch and root for Otani either. If that makes you uncomfortable, you can root for Shohei Otani. Yeah, just root for Otani. Yeah, that's what I've been doing. I've been watching a whole lot of Angels baseball because of Shohei Otani primarily. And I'm not sorry that I will be watching a whole lot less Angels baseball in the future. So I'm a mercenary when it comes to my watching habits because I'm not really a fan of any particular team anymore. So I go where the story is most interesting or the players are more interesting and compelling. And I know you can't just flip a switch and and snap your fingers and feel that way. It was a years-long unintentional process for me that not every media member goes through, though a lot do. But the point is to have fun. Right. So if it's making you miserable, then that seems counterproductive. Bad. There's seems a, bad. enough else in the world that makes you miserable that you so don't have to things. inflict more misery on yourself. Yeah. That said, and I probably mm. expressed some similar sentiments before, but some suffering, I think, can enhance the pleasure, right? If sure. you wait for the, the payoff and yeah. your team wins, if you're just never having a hard time in your fandom and you're right. just hopping from good team to good team, well, then you're not experiencing the downs and the ups won't feel like ups. They'll just feel True. like a baseline because you won't have experienced the down. Yeah. So I wouldn't recommend just anytime your team is bad, you jump ship and you sure. switch allegiances. But I think there are some cases where maybe the team has operated in such a way that it has kind of right. broken the contract with yeah. you to do its best or has just so mismanaged itself that you just have to cut ties. It's become a toxic relationship from your perspective and you just have to cut that out of your life. So yeah, I, I wouldn't say like the second the going gets tough, abandon that team because living through the lean years really can make it much more rewarding when you get to the not so lean years. But if it's this kind of case, like don't deprive yourself of Shohei Otani because you just happened, the cosmic coincidences conspired to make you an Angels fan, right? So whatever you have to do to continue to follow and enjoy his career and baseball at large, I think you should do without feeling bad about it. Yeah. Okay. Tim, Patreon supporter, says... It took 21 years, but I've now seen games at all but one of the affiliated minor league baseball and major league baseball parks, 233 parks total from the Portland Sea Dogs to the Portland Beavers. That is quite an accomplishment. I wonder if if that's including, I guess that's including parks that no longer exist, decommissioned parks. He he must have had to make multiple return trips to some parks during this 21-year odyssey as uh, parks were torn down and built up. It's like, oh, I already crossed that one off my list and now I got to go back again. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. So he says, usually in December, I'm planning the next season's trips, but now I don't know what to do. Mm. Should I start going to independent league stadiums, collegiate leagues, Mexico, Japan, or Korea? Or should I just find a new hobby? (laughs) What would you do? 
Wow. <laughs> well, I probably wouldn't find myself in this situation, although I admire and respect this accomplishment. I don't think I have it in me to travel quite that much to check all these boxes, yeah. but this is quite an experience. Tim should write a book about it or host yeah. a podcast or, or something. We should talk to him about this, but I don't know. I guess it would be tough to kick the habit of collecting ballparks after doing it for 21 years. Yeah. I really like the idea if like the, the means are there of sort of expanding internationally. Yeah. Both because you get to check another ballpark off your list, but you also get the experience of going and seeing like what is, you know, what's it like to take in a KBO game? What's an MPB yeah. game like? Like, you know, if you do winter league stuff, like go, go to lead games or something. I, you know, I, I know that people's sort of level of comfort and ability to travel internationally can vary, but like, if that's something that you're able and willing to do and find exciting, like that seems really cool. And then I think, you know, the other sort of way that you could approach sort of, you know, you have a list of things to go do, um, that relates to the, to baseball would be to flip it into checking off events on the baseball calendar. Like, have you ever been to an all-star game? Have you ever been to a world series game? Like, have you, um, you know, done, done fall league? Like, you know, there are a bunch of other, Yeah, I love that. I, you know, those are all the same, right? Caliber of experience, all-star game, world series game, fall league. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, but fall league's great. So everyone should, should fall league at some point. But yeah, I think that that would be another, avenue to explore is like go do go do stuff um related to baseball that you haven't had a chance to do you know there's you could do some of the international games that that MLB is hosting itself yeah. right like you could go do games in Europe you could go do games i mean they're going to host games in Japan like you could do all kinds of stuff mm -hmm. so i i don't think that you have to give up the habit i realize that once you um, bake international travel into the equation that your habit may have just become like meaningfully <laughs> more expensive. Yes. So, you know, that might be prohibitive, but if it's not like, I think that would be a cool way to take it. Yeah. There are only, I think six or so surviving Negro leagues, ballparks yeah. or fields. So yeah, that, that would might be, be something. Maybe you could go to the MLB game at Rickwood next yeah. year. Or, yeah, I like the international idea because there are only 10 KBO teams and 12 right. NPB teams. And, of course, those countries aren't as large. So you could make the rounds much more quickly and yeah. you get a completely different fan experience and rooting environment. And you can potentially turn it into a trip and do some non-baseball sightseeing. So, yeah. yeah, those would be my recommendations. Or you can just wait for new ballparks to be built or expansion to right. happen, and then you'll have to make some return trips to be a completionist again. Yeah. I guess this won't be as hard to do in the future because there are fewer minor league teams, right? So there are fewer minor league ballparks if you're sticking right. with affiliated teams. So a future Tim who wants to do what Tim is doing would have fewer boxes to check, right? Right. And you would be able to, um, you know, like assuming everything continues on the path it's on in addition to expansion, like you get the new ballpark in Vegas. Mm -hmm. So you're going to have that soon. Maybe. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Ish. Soon-ish. Yeah. 
And, you know, I think we'd all be well served to imagine that despite recent pushback, uh, that cities will get bilked out of public funding. So, you know, mm-hmm. it's not a, a completely exhausted supply domestically. Yeah. But, yeah. Must yeah. be hard to even remember anything about some of those ballparks after yeah. 233 and more yeah. than 20 years. I assume Tim must save some sort of memento, save a ticket stub from that game. Maybe he keeps score or or keeps the game log handy yeah. or takes some photos. It would be tough to actually retain <laughs> memories of those individual yeah. ballparks because some ballparks blend together and some locations blend together. So I wonder if he actually has a concrete differentiated memories of of each of the 233 but you know it's about the journey not the destination i can't remember what we talked about on this podcast like two (laughs) weeks ago so i would be envious of discrete memories of each one yeah he must keep great records even to know that he's done i wonder how many miles he's traveled does he have a big map with red yarn going everywhere and the mileage and (laughs) yeah all right michael patreon supporter says Revisiting and slightly revising a listener email question originally posed by Matt Trueblood on episode 419. Wow. Rank the six teams that finished last in their division in 2023 in order of how soon you think they will field a 90-win true talent team. So those six teams that finished last in their respective divisions, the Red Sox, the Royals, the A's, the Nats, the Cardinals, the Rockies. So I looked back at the Effectively Wild Wiki for episode 419, and my order at the time was Cubs, Astros, Twins, White Sox, Marlins, Rockies. Sam said Cubs, Astros, Marlins, Rockies, White Sox, Twins. I guess we were directionally right on most of those at least. So Red Sox, Royals, A's, Nats, Cardinals, Rockies. I don't know how you determine 90 win true talent team, but let's say their base runs record or their Pythag record or whatever. Which of them will be a 90 win true talent team next? Yes. In what what order? In what order? Get back to that. Okay. So here's how I would do it. Okay. True talent. Right. Yeah. True mm-hmm. talent. I'm saying this again because that makes a big difference. So I'm going to take the Red Sox first. OK. Uh, again, true talent. Will they w- finish with 90 wins in a packed AL East? Mm, but I could see them being a 90 win true talent team. Oh, even well, that's, if they, huh, that's interesting. Do you, is do that, you consider? Do you think that's an unfair of, interpretation? I think you take into account quality of competition here. I would say so. You can't, yeah, but like, you can't, can't take you, into account like luck or anything, but, but no, strength but of schedule, I right. think. Yeah, I but think can't you, can you imagine them. them being like a 90 win Pythag team, but having like 85 wins because they play in the East? Mm? I think my interpretation is fair. I mean, I guess their their Pythag would also be worse because they're playing in the East, though, right? Because they're they're still going to be playing tough teams. So. Yeah, but there could be a little gap. There could be a little yeah. Little I mean, there's gap. there's a, definitely a difference between ninety wins of true talent in the AL East versus the AL Central. But right. I guess if, because we're not forecasting any divisional realignments uh, in the immediate future that I we know not. of, at least, then right. I, I think we have to factor in their current environment mm. into our projections here. So yeah. I, I think if you're picking Red Sox, you have to pick Red Sox to be a 90 win base runs record or Pythag record team 
even in the AL East with stiff competition. I'm sighing greatly. <laughs> I still am going to take them first. Okay, yeah. And then I'm going to take the Cardinals, mm-hmm. and then I'm going to take the Nationals, and then I'm mm-hmm. going to take the Royals, and then I'm going to take the oh, A's, and then I'm going to take the Rockies. That's my order. Wow, Okay. Could the Rockies sink any lower that we're taking the A's over them? I just, it's so, they play on the surface of the moon. You know, this is like the the headwinds that they have. Ooh, I didn't mean to actually clap. (laughs) I did a little clap though. Yeah. Uh, Sorry. Wow, a little clap. I think that even when they have had a much better big league roster than they currently have, um, and even when I've had greater confidence in their um, uh, minor league reinforcements being able to bolster the the team, they still play on the moon, Ben. Uh, yeah. They just play on the moon. Yes. Now, the A's um, are not going to be on the moon, but they are going to play in a an environment that will have, I imagine, an impact on the, their club in some way, shape, or form, at least in the future, right? Right? Yeah. I think as currently constructed, right. I'd take the Rockies over the A's just because the A's have been actively trying Bad. to lose. The Rockies have been unintentionally losing. I guess <laughs> what's our timeline for this? Well, you know? yeah, that's kind of the question, I guess. But yeah. <laughs> but guess the Rockies usually are not that bad. They were very bad this season. They lost 100 games for the first time. But yeah. usually they don't dip below presentable, right? They haven't been that terrible. They haven't been that good either. But right. I could see the Rockies just kind of looking into it more so than I could see the A's doing it if the A's are operating like the A's have been recently. But I suppose there's a chance that maybe they will make an effort to put a competitive team on the field, a more competitive team on the field, because they may be moving and they Mm. may want to put their not worst foot forward as they introduce themselves to the natives of Las Vegas or the transplants Mm. in Las Vegas. There are people who grew up there, you know. Yeah, there are some. This is true. Yes. Or if they want to get a better ballpark deal or if Fisher wants to try to flip the team, even Mm. though the other owners anticipated that he might do that and (laughs) built in a steep tax there. So maybe they will stop trying to suck so much now that they have forced their way out of Oakland, whereas... The Rockies are not trying to suck, but they have managed yeah. it nonetheless. Yeah. And I don't know that they will suddenly change. So, yeah, that's a tough one. Anyway, I guess for my pick, I'll probably go Cardinals first just because the Cardinals are always a 90-win team, <laughs> except for this year, right? Otherwise, they're they're almost always hovering right around there. And then I guess I'd go Red Sox next. Mm-hmm. And then... Tough. I guess I'll go not Nets like John Carl Stanton and take the Royals because hey, they're trying. We'll see if they it works. They are trying, and the Nets uh, are are going to be getting better too. One would hope, yeah. but I'll put them behind the Royals. Though I think the Royals are still quite far from being good. They were arguably barely a 90-win true talent team when they won the World Series. But the Royals actually had a better base runs record than the Nationals did in 2023, even though the Nationals won 15 more games. Sort of a toss-up. And then 
I'll, I'll say I'll give the Rockies this much. I'll say, I'll say that they get there before the A's do. That's uh, not much of a compliment, but it's something. No, yeah. no we're, we're being very rude, but, mm-hmm. you know, what are you going to do? Yeah. All right. Nick says, I've long been confused by the use of the term prep in prospecting circles, i.e. the top prep arm in his class. Yeah. Is it referring exclusively to guys who attend a preparatory school? No. What would be the point of dividing the high school class in such a way? There How many draft prospects even go to prep school? Or is it instead being used to refer to all high school prospects? Yeah. But this would also be weird because I can think of no other instance in which prep refers to all high schoolers. My guess is publications don't like saying the words high school 500 times in an article. Yep. And yep. so mix in a few preps. But yep. I was hoping a couple of baseball writers slash editors such as yourselves could shed some light on this. Yep. Yep, Your that's instincts, pretty much it. <laughs> that's pretty much it. Because you know what? You just get so tired of saying high schooler over and over and over yeah. again. Um, and so sometimes you call them a prep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know? And I don't, you know, I don't actively differentiate between, it's not like I'm more likely to apply the prep label to someone I know is going to um, what is calling itself a preparatory school or all schools like technically preparatory schools they might not call themselves that and i understand that there's like a private and special thing that like they're trying to do um when you're like preparatory academy but like all schools are preparation for something else otherwise it it wouldn't be school you know (laughs) it would be daycare that's a different project Mm -hmm. so i don't really differentiate mostly because like it's really hard to know what kind of some of these schools sound fake they sound like made up schools and some of them are made up like the primary purpose is to pool athletes so that they can get drafted um that does happen a lot like Mm -hmm. some of the academies in florida you're like they're they're there to do sports they're not there to learn stuff but i don't really apply the label to one versus the other with any kind of consistency it's just like oh god i can't say high school again oh my god yeah, I asked Eric Long and Higgett about this too, and he said the same thing. He also yeah. said, verbally, prep is so much easier to say than high school, so you save yourself time yeah. when you're speaking as well. True enough. Yeah, It is true, though. I imagine this could be confusing to someone yeah. who's not oh, really yeah. read into this practice. And yeah. yeah, we don't typically do this in other fields. We say preppy, maybe, but right. that, that probably does sort of specifically refer to preparatory school maybe there i have a great there are some great podcasts about this very question (laughs) okay um ben and like the development of prep uh as a as a style Mm -hmm. um and uh yeah so like it's really something right yeah Yeah. so there could Mm -hmm. be a prep school stereotype that might lead to someone saying preppy but that is not what we mean when we say prep yeah. player prep prospect yeah yeah like there's a there's a really good episode of you're wrong about with uh avery truffleman who i think has also she does like a a podcast of her own about uh fashion and style trends and like where they come from and and whatnot um so you, everyone should go listen to that and then i think there was also a decoder episode about it it's very interesting you go mm-hmm. listen to that one a- avery truffleman she knows what she's talking about yeah i okay. want stuff i'll link it on the show page <laughs> two more adrian let's say there's a free agent who comes onto the market let's call him the say yay kid 
who is a 30-year-old quad A type of player with no distinguishing tool, except for the ability to deliver rousing dressing room pep talks that inspire teammates so powerfully that at their fullest potency, guarantee victory of the game they're playing, no matter the score. His agent tells teams that at least one of these talks every year guarantees a win, but the Say Yay kid can't know in advance of the pep talk which game that is. Oh. The catch, though, is that the potency of the pep talk skill is linked to his on-field performance. That is, his pep talks are only as effective as the respect the rest of the dressing room. What's this dressing room? Is this a is this a hockey thing? Dressing I don't room? Know. I don't know. This is uh, not not so much in use in baseball. Yeah. The rest of the dressing room has for him as a player. Is an MLB team signing him? And if so, which one and for how much? This is basically a question about how much we should value the pure social intangibles of players. So we have a Jason Hayward type here. Yeah. Who could maybe deliver the perfect clutch pep talk, rousing, inspirational Coach Taylor sort of speech, but doesn't know when it will be, doesn't know which game it will work. And also it doesn't work as well if he doesn't play as well, which is something you hear that it's tough to be a team leader if you're not good. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) It's it's tough to like lead with words if you're not leading by example on the field in the sense of like being good at baseball. Can you exhort your teammates to be good if you yourself suck sort of, right? Yeah. And there are some exceptions to that that we might think of, but in general, I think there's like a baseline um, contribution of performance that is necessary for people to kind of hear that in the way that it's meant to be delivered, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Mm. Yeah. I don't think that this would, would merit a particularly robust contract because Mm -hmm. especially if the, the sort of impact of the, of the big speech is tied to that player's performance on the field, like that implies like playing time thresholds that if you're really just like, now maybe you, you're a team that needs like kind of a bench guy. And so you're like, we need a bench guy. And like, this guy kind of sounds like a bench guy. And, um, so we'll, you know, give him some run every now and again when somebody gets hurt or like need, but committing playing time to this kind of guy, you can probably bring together that level of performance, um, elsewhere with with greater impact and fewer strings, I would mm-hmm. I would think. Now, can this skill set transfer to a coach? Because if that's the mm. case, then just have that guy be your pep guy. You know, like right. it just can have him be the the pep dude and be mm-hmm. like, it's time to bring in the pep. Yeah, you know? yeah. It would be different if it were more predictable. If right. it were. I give the pep talk and then we win. If it were an yeah. automatic victory and you could oh, just save it for a contract. must win game. Yeah. yeah. Then you absolutely. Well, big-ish, you know, reasonable. Right. Yeah. You, you, you could carry that guy on a bench all year, potentially, if the rest of your team is good enough. If you're the Dodgers, let's say, <laughs> they did just resign Jason Hayward, but they expect him to produce on the field as well, I imagine. But if you were the Dodgers and you had a hellacious lineup, then yeah. you could carry the Say Yay kid knowing that, hey, if we get to a playoff elimination game, right. we can break glass in case of emergency and the Say Yay kid yeah. can come out and work his magic. And right. man, they not only have Hayward, 
they have Otani, who we learned in the WBC is quite a accomplished inspirational speaker himself. I mean, we learned it again with Glass now. Right. Yeah. Right. He's persuasive and inspirational, not only by example, but he can pump up his teammates when the case calls for it. So they are they're really covered. Not only do they have talent, but they have the the speaking. They have the the orators on this team, too. But mm. yeah, I think it's just, it's too unpredictable. If it were more directly right. tied, if it were more, okay, this is the game we need to win, do your thing and we will win, then yeah. But because there's so much unpredictability and uncertainty and because it's tied to the player's performance, I don't think you would sign him unless you would want him anyway. It would be a nice bonus if he were a player you wanted to employ purely for performance reasons, but it's probably not enough on its own. I mean, I mean, I guess it makes him a one-win player. Sure, <laughs> that, that is that is technically true. <laughs> but you just don't know when that win will be. And, and you don't know what the cumulative impact of the on. I mean, like, we know that he has to be decently good for him to like activate this power. Mm-hmm. But you like for how long? How long does he have to be like decently good? It's just like it feels like given you're gonna have to give playing time to this guy you know like you're gonna have to give him playing time and that might uh, on balance is that gonna be worth it i don't know i feel like i called it decoder it's decoder ring is the name of that podcast Mm -hmm. decoder ring yeah 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 you can't carry a a pure motivational speaker who who isn't adding anything else and is only giving you one win that right. may or may not come in a game when you don't even, I, I guess. Now, it, what if he doesn't deliver a speech except for one time? Like, can you game this so that oh. if if at least one of these talks every year guarantees a win, yeah. then what if you save it? What if you only give one of these talks? Then oh. does that mean you're guaranteed a win in that one game? If so, know. we found a, a loophole here. A loophole. <laughs> and and that would be essentially the same as getting a guaranteed win in a must-win game. Right. You just you'd have to save it for that one time. Mm, much to mm. consider. Can I interrupt our flow mm-hmm. of uh emails for a second sure. and and share a, a sad thought? Oh yeah. Have you been thinking about how Clayton Kershaw's been feeling lately? I've been thinking about that a lot. I found myself thinking about Clayton Kershaw and his mood lately. You think he's with, feeling a little left out? I think he might be feeling left out. Or I, I worry he is feeling left out. I, you know, I just, it made me realize that I hope they find a way to have him involved in yeah. this, uh, this new era of Dodger baseball because... I don't agree that the last 10 years has been a failure. I think that that is an overly dr- like dramatic way of describing it um, or the, it, it overstates the magnitude of what they have failed to accomplish and doesn't appreciate what they have accomplished quite mm-hmm. enough. And I get that's part of a sales pitch and whatnot, but I imagine there's some truth to that expression of their view of the org. But like they've been phenomenally successful as an organization and he did win a World Series, but... I just think that like this is a new this is a line of demarcation and maybe it's cleaner for them to have it be like wholly separate in some ways from Kershaw but I hope it isn't I mm-hmm. I you know I was thinking about him yesterday which is so weird cuz I don't know him you know we're not acquainted <laughs> yeah. and yet I sat there and thought I hope Kirsch is okay, you know, and I hope he mm-hmm. gets to be involved if he wants to be. I don't know. It's, it's yeah, been... I'm sure it's up to him. <laughs> I, I doubt they're going to say no. I don't know I that guess. they would pay him 
what he wants to be paid necessarily. Right. It depends on his health, of course. But if yeah. he wants to come back, I don't think they're going to say no to Clayton Kershaw if he's willing Probably to not. take some injury-related discount. And also, you know, because they expect him to pitch a partial season anyway, and they still need some pitching and he just has meant so much to that franchise yeah. but it must be a bit weird the way that his season ended yes. of course just getting completely shellacked and then yeah. having to have surgery and then suddenly there's a new face of the franchise in town in Shohei yeah. Otani and also a new top of the rotation pitcher in yeah. Tarabasno and it's like I'm Clayton Kershaw though yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> these have been my thoughts lately Ben you know mm-hmm. I've been yeah. Anyway, I I'm just, sure if he uh, wants to be back, he can be back. So. I hope so. I hope so. Yeah. All right. Last question before I do some stat blasting. Stay Josh again. says, I'm not sure if either of you has been following the controversy surrounding the playoff selection process in college football, mm-hmm. but as someone whose entire extended family, both parents, aunts, uncles, cousins, even a grandparent all attended Florida State, oh, I certainly sorry. have. Based on the structure of sports as we know them, choosing a team for the postseason based on criteria other than wins on the field seems admittedly bizarre, but effectively Wild has never shied away from bizarre. So here's the question. If MLB decided to implement a playoff committee similar Mm. to college football, what criteria would make for the best postseason fan experience? Biggest markets, biggest stars, most oh, even no. matchups, most oh, favorable no. run scoring environments. In other words, oh, if so the postseason right. were different, how different would it be? <laughs> okay. So a bit of background on college football, which uh, I have recently acquired. I will act as if I know what I'm talking <laughs> about here. Let, let me explain it to okay. you. Okay. Yeah, listener. please tell yeah. me about. No, tell me. Because like, I don't know if I could uh, articulate it on the fly. Yeah. It's such a arbitrary and strange thing, you know. Let me enlighten you all yeah. about college football, an area of expertise of mine. So there is a college football playoff era that began not that long ago, as I understand it. It was like 2014, right? And so there were like initially four teams in two semifinals and they played in bowl games and then there was a national championship game. Everyone other than me knows this already. So I'm, I'm saying this as much for my benefit as anyone else. Yes. But... There's a, a college football playoff selection committee yep. with 13 members, I think. And it's mm-hmm. people who've right. been coaches, players, college administrators, athletic and also directors. also Condoleezza Rice for some reason we don't really? understand. Huh. Journalists? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I have to double check that, but I'm pretty sure Condoleezza Rice was on the... Condoleezza <laughs> Rice. Yeah, that was outside of my, my research, I believe. Football playoff committee. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, she served okay. from 2013 to 2017. Huh, sure, yeah. why not? All right, yeah. well, the selection committee meets weekly and they make rankings. Yeah. And their rankings are based on how the members evaluate the team's performance on the field. So they take into account conference championships won and strength of schedule and right. head-to-head record and comparing results against common opponents Mm -hmm. to to decide which teams are best, not just going purely by record, I guess because there are such differences in schedule that that you have to bring in these other factors, right? And so the committee members create a list of the 30 teams that they believe are the best in the country and then 
three or more members list a team, it stays under consideration, and then other teams can be added to the group of teams under consideration by a vote of three or more members. This is all quite foreign to me. There was a big hullabaloo about this lately because Florida State was left out and was yes. undefeated, right? Correct. So they were 13-0, and 0, but not a playoff team. And uh, people were upset about that, understandably, I guess, right? But what I didn't know, I mean, that applies to everything I just said, but what I didn't know specifically that was most interesting to me is that the reason seemingly that they were left out, or at least Mm -hmm. one of the prominent reasons is that their quarterback got hurt, right? And so they are not currently as good as they were when they were 13-0 for most of the season when they had their quarterback that and is the, the argument that is being made yes that is odd yeah <laughs> that's very odd to me and the quarterback was like i i wish i had uh, broken my leg sooner so that you would all know that the team is much more than me which is a very selfless thing to say but yes. jordan travis <laughs> who uh broke his leg in a home game against north alabama yeah so people are upset about this And it does seem very imprecise, at least to me, although I guess there's some imprecision in the baseball playoff field, too. But it's a little less subjective, (laughs) at least, and and a little less opaque. Right. This is this is odd, though, the idea that you would deprive a team of its playoff appearance because it's missing a a player (laughs) who is good. And so it's not currently as good. So, Ben, here's the thing about the college football playoff system that I I think is probably the most obvious argument for not replicating what they're doing here, which is that they are changing this system. <laughs> like they are expanding the playoff field in yeah. coming years, um, in part because um, it is stupid as currently constituted. I mean, look. It kind of depends what you want out of your postseason, right? Mm-hmm. Like college football is weird and feral and populated by, you know, young men who are providing an incredibly lucrative service to their universities while not being adequately compensated for it. Even in the era of NIL deals, they can move around much more than they were ever able to in the past. But it is like a wackadoo system. And I say that as someone who um, would just like everyone to acknowledge the obvious um, superiority of the University of Washington Huskies. Um, They are not the best uh, team in the playoff field, but boy, are they in it. And I'm excited. Mm -hmm. Mighty are they who wear the purple and gold. Um, (laughs) I went to Bryn Mawr. I get to like root for (laughs) UW. It's fine, you guys. Fine. I was admitted to the University of Washington twice, both uh, undergrad and grad school. You know, I just didn't go. Um, Mm -hmm. Anyway, I think that like here's the thing: as much as we like to make fun of, say, the Kansas City Royals or the Oakland Athletics or even the Colorado Rockies, part of what the college football playoff committee is trying to solve here is this problem of how radically different the quality of opponent can be for any of these schools, right? And teams will like 
lard up their schedules with easy opponents. They will schedule out-of-conference matches, not because they know that they can defeat, you know, Alabama, but because they want the TV revenue of playing Alabama, right? And you have the SEC as sort of this powerhouse, and then you have the other Power Five conferences that are, like, pretending they're really good, and sometimes they are, and sometimes they're not. So I think that, like, a lot of the inducement to do things this way, baseball doesn't have to worry about, right? Like, first Mm -hmm. of all, it's a very long season, so we have a much better idea by the end of it of who is good and who is not. And while, again, there are big differences between, say, the very best teams in the league and the worst teams in terms of the quality of the roster, the gap is much narrower than it is between the very best college football team and the worst college football team. And so I think that you can feel confident that, you know, you're going to have a good idea of who's good by the end. And of course, now they like play a balanced schedule. So they all play each other, you know, to differing degrees in the course of a season, but they all play each other. So Mm -hmm. we don't need the business. We don't need this business. And, you know, I think that it sucks for the Dodgers say that they went into the postseason with like one sort of healthy starter. And that was it. But the playoff field, which exists over an entire month's worth of play, potentially sorts these things out. You know, yeah. um, it sorts it out. Can you imagine? Because this is one of the factors: unavailability of key players. Right. And and so the college football playoff committee chair Boo Corrigan said Florida State is a different team than they were through the first eleven weeks. An incredible season, but as you look at who is there but as you look at who they are as a team right now without Jordan Travis, without the offensive dynamic that he brings to it, they are a different team. Can you imagine if Rob Manford was like, yeah, well, without Clayton Kershaw healthy and without Walker Bueller, et cetera, et cetera. The Dodgers right. are a different team. So sorry, you won 100 games. But yeah, you know, they, they just don't have the uh, defensive dynamic that they bring right. to it. So <laughs> you're out. Yeah, that, that would not be an improvement. And, you know, you do get the phenomena of players. And I you know, want to make clear, I think they are well within their rights to make this distinct, this decision, but it's a little less common with the, the teams that are going to the playoff, but these guys aren't pros yet. And so sometimes you have players who are like, I can't get hurt in a bowl game. I need to get drafted in a couple of months, you know? Mm -hmm. And so it's like, you take the, the quality of the team as it's currently constituted into account. And then sometimes guys sit out because they don't want to get hurt before they get drafted and sign like their first big contract as an NFL player, which is perfectly reasonable, you know? So it's all very goofy. And I think that if you are able to like engage with the college football playoff the way that like I engage with the MAC conference during the season where it's like, we're going to see some weird stuff in MACtion tonight, then it's really fun and light and silly, but like it matters a lot to people. And so I'm not trying, you know, like I think if you're a Florida state fan, you are well within your rights to feel pretty peeved that this was the decision that was made. Even if I, as someone who is not a Florida state fan, like am kind of okay with the committee, prioritizing like the watchability of the thing in this particular instance, but it's not fair. Like it's, Mm -hmm. it's not fair. It (laughs) is actively unfair, you know, and they, there's all kind of by all kinds of bias that gets introduced in this process. And sometimes it's in service of like more watchable stuff, but often it's in service of like the primacy of the sec because it just 
matters more here. It's like, relax, you guys. Like, it's Mm -hmm. fine. Um, And so I think having just the results on the field determine who's in and who's out is the safest avenue um, in a pro context because you don't have to worry about either actual bias making its way into the selection process or the perception of bias, which I think does undermine the sort of integrity of the whole endeavor. And when, again, when it's college football and it is understood to be doofy and feral, like that maybe matters less to you, but like this is, you know, we want there to be some amount of seriousness to baseball. We don't embrace feral in baseball. We are like anti-feral. And, you know, we could maybe deal with a little sprinkling of that and it would be fine. But, um, you know, you can't have people wondering, oh, the, the they only got in because of the size of the media market. Like, you can't have people right. worried about that, even if it doesn't end up being the thing that really determined what a hypothetical selection committee would do. So, yeah. yeah. These criteria are, at least in theory, they're, they're supposed to pertain to the strength of the team. It's supposed to reward the best teams, not just the most entertaining, although I guess better teams, more entertaining, but it's not like they're taking into account style or something like this team is fun to play, or at least they're not saying that. Right. And so Josh is saying, what would the equivalent be for baseball? Like, you know, bigger stars or bigger markets or that would be payroll size. Maybe because you want to reward that owner. Yeah. Yeah, but that would be going pretty far afield from how you actually performed on the field, right? So even what they're trying to do here with Travis Jordan is at least an attempt to factor in current team quality, which again, it it seems like to not take into account what the team actually did for much of the season is questionable. But still, this is all pertaining to current talent and performance. So if you were to do this in baseball, sticking with the same rubric there, then, well, there is not anywhere close to the same degree of difference when it comes to the quality of competition and everything, but there's some, obviously. So even though schedules are more balanced than they used to be, which I'm about to stat blast about, they're Mm -hmm. not completely balanced. So you could take into account the schedule. You could take into account division, of course, like we probably wouldn't even want divisions if we were doing a selection like this. We would just Mm -hmm. want the best teams. We wouldn't just say arbitrarily you get to go in even though you're not as good a team because you were in this division. So yeah, you would probably disregard that and you would take into account the specifics of the schedule. And yes, maybe you would take into account Pythag or base runs record, something like that. And I guess if you wanted to do the equivalent of what this committee is currently doing, you would take Dan Simborski's projected (laughs) true talent of the roster as it is constructed at the end of the season, his his postseason zips, essentially. And you would count that instead of what the team did in April or May. Right. And you might even take into account if it's a better playoff team than it was a regular season team, right? If what you care about is how competitive it's going to be in the playoffs, then you would look to see, does it get a bigger boost because they have a weak back of the rotation, but a great top of the rotation or back of the bullpen or whatever it is. Right. It's it's kind of weird that back of the rotation is bad, but back of the bullpen is good. I agree, Ben. I agree. It bothers me every time I'm dealing with it for a minute. Uh, We... (laughs) We goofed that. 
We huh. made it ambiguous. That just dawned good. on me. Yeah. Yeah. No. Yeah. Yeah. Talk more about that. Let's talk about that for half an hour. People will be really into it. <laughs> I guess it makes sense because the bullpen is coming in at the back of the right. game. And right. And you're doing it from starting a game. You're correlate. Yeah. You're you're linking it to the innings they're pitching. I think that that's the way that it happened. Right. Because they come in at the yeah. end and like the guy at the back is your ninth inning guy. And so you end up being like, that's the best guy. But yeah. it's, it's stupid. It's a stupid yeah. way to do it. We made a horrible mistake that we can't undo. <laughs> well, I didn't mean to pedantically derail us there. Actually, I kind of did. But yeah, you did. I'm just saying you could take into account that is it a, a better playoff team today and right. disregard, which we do when we're kind of handicapping playoff rounds, but we don't do when it comes to qualifying for those right. playoff rounds. So I, again, I don't think we need to do this and I don't think we should do this. But yeah, yeah if you were going to go full like, well, what's most entertaining, then it wouldn't even necessarily be the best teams. It, it right. might be, yeah, the Reds get to go in because it's maybe Joey Votto's right. last season or right. it's uh, Ellie De La Cruz and we want to watch him and they haven't been Cats in the playoffs for a while. Yeah. Living together. Yeah. Then it would be... It would be purely vibes-based and aesthetics-based, and we would have to have yeah. a, a panel of people judging the vibes of the baseball teams in addition to— They should let to, us do it. Yeah. I think yeah. we'd be good at it. Yeah. I do. I do. I think um, that we'd be good at it, but I also would be so afraid of what our inbox would look like. Oh, yeah. You know? People would be mad no matter what we decided. Yeah. I mean, I guess as long as Condoleezza Rice isn't involved, it's probably coming out ahead. <laughs> what was that? I don't know. I, so I don't weird. Wanna, I, I think we're probably more qualified to do this for baseball than, than Condi was for football. But then, I don't know, maybe she's a college football expert. I know. I mean, I'm sure she I'd, knows more than I do. I, I'm not impugning her expertise about college football, candidly. Yeah. I have no way yeah. to, I don't know, one way or the other. I just mm -hmm. like, you know, it should be like a <laughs> no war crimes requirement for <laughs> that kind of service. <laughs> Stop blast. They'll take a data set sort if I something like E-R-A-Minus or O-B-S plus. And then they'll tease out some interesting tidbit, discuss it at length, and analyze it for us in amazing ways. Here's today's Stop Blast. Okay. First of three comes from Dennis, Patreon supporter. I will answer these questions three, although one of the questions I will pose myself. Dennis says, Bobo Newsom, Hall of Very Good member, had a weird path through baseball in an era of 16 AL and NL teams. He played for nine. That's a greater percentage of possible teams than Edwin Jackson, who played for a record 14 teams. But what jumps out at me immediately is the number of times he changed teams. Although he only played for nine teams, he switched teams 16 times. In other words, he had 17 different stops in the league. Even Edwin Jackson only switched teams 15 times. I've manually checked some of the other players toward the top of the list, for instance, Rich Hill, and couldn't find anyone who changed teams more than Bobo's 16. Is this a record? So Bobo has come up on the podcast before. Not Popo. Bobo. On Bobo. episode 1780, we did a stat blast inspired by Rich Hill because the Red Sox had 
reacquired him. They acquired him for the fourth time. I wondered whether that was a record and Kenny Jacklin helped us out and confirmed that his seven free agent contracts with the Red Sox is a record. But we went over the players who had been acquired by a single team for the most times. And it was Scott Service, not the Mariners Scott Service, the other Scott Service Mm. spelled differently, who'd been acquired by the Cincinnati Reds on six separate occasions. And he was a hometown guy. He was from Cincinnati, much like Rich Hill is a New Englander. So that probably played a part there. But Bobo came up because he had five separate stints with the Senators. So Ryan Nelson, frequent Stat Blast consultant, find him on Twitter at rsnelson23. He looked up the team changes here. And indeed, as Dennis suspected, Bobo Newsom has the record with 17 just ahead of Edwin Jackson, 16, followed by Terry Mulholland, Rudy Cienez, Ron Vallone, Miguel Batista, Russell Brandon, Octavio Dotel, Ricky Henderson, Kenny Lofton, Cameron Mabin, Mike Morgan, Russ Springer, Matt Stairs, Rick White, Jamie Wright, Miguel Cairo, Jesse Chavez, Tyler Clippard, Bartol Colon. I could keep reading names. Rich Hill is down at 12, but Bobo is at the top, and it really is. If we were able to era adjust this somehow, it would be even more impressive because there were just barely more than half as many teams in his day as there are now. And there was a reserve clause and there right. was less player turnover. There was no free agency. So the fact that he managed that many changes in that era is incredible. But that was one of the many incredible things about Bobo. If you oh. haven't really read up on Bobo, do yourself a favor. He's one of the colorful characters of baseball. He's called Bobo because he couldn't really remember anyone's name. So he'd just call everyone Bobo, including himself who he would refer to as Bobo. He would refer to himself in the third person long before Ricky did that. And he really wore out his welcome in a lot of places and not so much with teammates. Uh, He was a popular teammate. He was a kind, friendly guy by all or most accounts, but managers, uh, their patience wore thin with him. Sometimes he had a big blow up with Leo DeRocher And Bucky Harris of the Senators was constantly shipping him out and bringing him back again because he was a good pitcher. I mean, he was really good. He pitched in the majors for 20 years. He pitched professionally for 26 years. And there are worse pitchers in the Hall of Fame than Bobo Newsom. But he was just uh, tough to tolerate, at least for authority figures. And so they would get rid of him and then they'd feel like, hey, you know who we need? Bobo Newsom. We need to bring him back in here. So there's a biography about him from several years ago called Bobo Newsom, Baseball's Traveling Man, which is a, a very appropriate title. So, yeah, Bobo, incredible movement in an era of less player movement. There is a wide receiver on the Seahawks whose name is Jake Bobo, and he's only played for one team there. (laughs) Okay. And supposedly he boasted that he had more terms in Washington than President Roosevelt, which is true. (laughs) Roosevelt, only four terms and uh, didn't even finish the fourth one. And Bobo had, I guess, five separate stints with the senator. So I don't know if he actually said that or is just supposed to have said that. But good line one way or another. All right. Next question. Well, I guess this one kind of comes from me. And I brought a prop and I have this physical object next to me, but I'm going to send you a picture, which I will link to on the show page so that everyone can see it. 
I'd like you to describe as best you can what you Aww. see in this image. <laughs> so I, I was cleaning out my closet Did this past weekend. Did you this as a, as a young child? <laughs> oh, yeah. Ben, you have yeah. only ever been yourself, huh? It's true. You just, you've just only ever been Ben. You've just Basically, been a Ben this whole time. Pretty much. This <laughs> is a clay? Clay? Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. I'm going to say, like, it is It is technically a disc, but I imagine it is meant to be a plaque. Yeah. Right? It is meant to emulate a, a plaque. Yeah. And it is, it is a plaque of the Yankees' um, accomplishments mm-hmm. um, up through the year. So... Uh, am I right to think that you have indicated World Series wins at the top here? Is that yep. right? Yeah, These I are did World's... a count the rings at count the top. Count the rings. Um, yeah. And then um, you have uh, created, uh, Yan- you have Yankees and you have a, a 3D Yankees logo. <laughs> yeah. Interlocking in Y there. Yeah. yeah Incredible that, craftsmanship on my yeah, part. Yeah, sticks out from, from the, yeah. from the disc plaque. Embossed, Yeah. And then you have um, you have an all time lineup, mm-hmm. which uh, lists the very best Yankees. Yeah, we'll get to that in a second. And then you have uh, what I imagine are all of the retired numbers That's up until right. that point. Mm-hmm. There have been so many more added since you. Made <laughs> I know. This. I need to update this. <laughs> it's shocking that they have any numbers left. On mm-hmm. honestly, like we've said before, they're going to get to wingdings soon. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, the all-time lineup, which is Lou Gehrig, <laughs> Willie Randall. Hold on, oh, we'll get to that. Sorry. that oh, that's sorry. the subject of the step last. Oh, I'm but, so sorry. No, it's okay. Oh, I no. didn't tell you to describe what okay. you're seeing here. Yeah, but, I, I was it, just <laughs> listening to instructions. It's it's reversible, though. I mean, not really. There's a, a back to it if you scroll oh. down. There's oh, more. Oh. Yeah. Oh it's, my. Okay. It's and then a, these a pinstriped plaque on the back. Pinstriped. Hey, hey, tell Aaron Judge. Get Aaron Judge on <laughs> yeah. this. Just let, like Manny let, Machado looks better. Yeah. With let Manny know. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is the Yankees Hall of Famers. Mm-hmm. And boy, are there a bunch. Mm-hmm. And then at the bottom, am I right to think that this is this is Yankees MVPs? Yep. I got a little sidebar down yeah, there. Yeah. And I'm not going to say any of those names in case there's a stat blast about that too. <laughs> no, there isn't about that. But okay. yeah, this is this is a, a portable cheat sheet. Basically, this is like Monument Park you can yeah. carry more yeah. or less. And this was created in pottery class in grammar school. Now, I guess given that I do have the 2000 world championship there, oh, which yeah. was the most recent at the time. That had probably just happened. Right. So I would have been in eighth grade at the time. I would have been 13 years old. Okay. And this was before 14-year-old me had his heart broken by Luis Gonzalez. Of course, I imagine this was before that happened. I I had started high school by that point. So this must have been one of my last acts in grammar school was to create this lasting relic, this monument to my now defunct fandom. And... Yeah, obviously, I I would have run out of real estate on this thing by now, probably. Yeah. Because uh, so many more Hall of Famers since then and retired numbers and one more championship, which is probably not as many as I would have guessed at the time. But I have to take issue with my all-time lineup. That is 
that's what I'm stat blasting okay. about here. Okay. I would also take issue with the fact that I hyphenated Hall of Famers. Yeah, I wasn't going to say. I wasn't going to say anything. Yeah, I wouldn't. I do was going to let that go. Yeah, I, I've yeah. learned something I, at least. I did hopefully. note it though. I want you to know. I was like, well, yeah, well, you were young. <laughs> yeah, I wasn't working from the same style guide back then. But but in the past uh, twenty plus years, I have refrained from hyphenating in in that specific situation. Right. Also, it seems like in an act of hubris and Yankees fan entitlement, I was claiming anyone with even the most tenuous connection to the Yankees as a Yankees Hall of Famer, not just guys who have a Yankees cap on their plaque. I have Paul Weiner here who played 10 games for the Yankees at the end of his career during World War II. Evidently, that counted as far as I was concerned. I used to decorate all sorts of things with Yankees insignia. I have all these okay. uh, paraphernalia. I have ping pong paddles that cool. are decorated with interlocking NYs. Uh, if anyone doubts that I was at one time an obnoxious Yankee fan, I have the physical objects to prove it, the memorabilia. Sorry, yeah. can I ask mm -hmm. a clarifying question? Mm -hmm. So did you buy ping pong paddles and then affix the yes. logos yourself? Oh, yes, I did. It was okay. yeah, handcrafted. Uh yeah, so you were crafting. You were doing crafts. Yeah, this was okay. Etsy before Etsy, wow. basically. Wow, okay. I should, I should auction these things off, perhaps. Um, maybe. <laughs> maybe, yeah. I don't know if anyone would bid, but shout out to the late Mary Miner, who was a, a wonderful pottery teacher, and I can't imagine that I really lived up to her expectations in that class. Probably this was not a project that she approved of or recommended, certainly, mm -hmm. but you know, she let us pursue our passions, which is why pottery class was great. That and just that oozy feeling when you put the clay on the pottery wheel. That was fun. Anyway, the all-time lineup. I think I got most of this right. Okay. And some of it would be different just because it's 2023 now and not 2000. But I have to take serious issue. I have to quibble with at least a couple of my picks here. I don't know what 13-year-old me was thinking. If I went by war now, let's say. Yeah. I didn't have war at my disposal back then, no. obviously. So, you know, we can give me a pass, perhaps. I got the obvious ones, right? Lou Gehrig, parentheses, Iron Horse is my all-time Yankees first baseman. Okay. Makes okay. sense. Yeah. Second base, I had Willie Randolph, which yep. I think a pretty astute pick. That actually yeah. holds up. I, I stat-headed all the Yankees' uh, positional war leaders with some minimum amount of playing time. And Willie Randolph is atop that list, yeah. just ahead of Tony Lazeri and Robinson Cano, who I had not heard of at that right. point in my life. So, like, who can hold that against you, you know? Right. You're yeah, a child. But, yeah, but even now, I think uh, Willie Randolph is the right choice. Now, at shortstop, I had Phil, parentheses, Scooter, Rizzuto, lest anyone confuse that with some other Phil Rizzuto who is not nicknamed Scooter. And that was the appropriate pick at the time. Mm -hmm. He has since been supplanted by Derek Jeter, of course, sure. but he's second on the list and would have been first sure. in war at the time. I guess lineup might be based on, on your bat, your offensive potential. Right. But I don't know. If you're putting someone in the lineup, it's uh, right. for their holistic the contributions. Too. Right. Yeah. yeah. Unless they're DHing. So, right. sure. okay. And I had, all right, I'm going to skip over third base for the moment. Okay. Catcher, Yogi Berra. All right. Okay, fine. No, no issues there. He's nope. uh, only barely ahead of Bill Dickey, who uh, also has his number eight retired, but he's ahead. Okay. I'm yeah. going to skip over left field because uh, that's another problem area here. S center field, Mickey Mantle. Fine. All right. Can't go wrong with the Mick. Apologies to, to Joe D and, and my man, Bernie Williams, but Mickey Mantle atop the war leaderboard. Sure. Right field, Babe Ruth, obviously, head and shoulders above everyone else. Okay. 
So the problem positions. Third base, I had, inexplicably, Frank, parentheses, the crow, Corsetti. Yeah. Now, I knew my baseball history at the time. I was fairly well-read, certainly when it came to the Yankees, and and not every 13-year-old would have heard of Frank the Crow Crissetti. Right. But I don't know what I was thinking, putting him as the all-time third baseman for the Yankees, given that he barely played third base, for one Mm. thing. (laughs) So that's that's one problem. He played 1,516 career games at shortstop and 131 career games at third base. So... Baseball reference lists him as a shortstop and third baseman, but third base clearly secondary, a distant second there. So I I don't know exactly how I had him as a third baseman, but beyond that, I don't know why I would have had him as the third baseman, even if he were primarily a third baseman. Now, today it would be A-Rod, who, again, was not yet a Yankee at that point. But I was just sleeping on Greg Nettles. Like, what was I thinking? Where was Greg Nettles on this all time? I don't get it. Like... I mean, the Crow would have been maybe like fourth on the list if he had been a third baseman after Nettles and, and Red Rolf. <laughs> but but like, where was Nettles? How did Mary Minor, my late pottery teacher, not rebuke me here? I don't think she was a big Yankees fan, but I just I don't <laughs> know where I got this. I don't know where you got it either. I look, first of all, you were a child, so like yeah. we don't have to, you know. But I was but precocious. You were precocious, yeah. you know. So there's that, and also, you know, it's funny when if it was like guys you had like really strong attachment to yourself. Yeah. Like right, it, it's like it, it wasn't Scott Brocious or something. Right, right? exactly. Like yeah. I, if I were, I mean, this is more defensible for any number of reasons, but like you know, I think we've talked before about how when I was young, like I loved. I loved Dan Wilson and I loved Dan Wilson in a way like Dan Wilson was a perfectly fine big leaguer, but like I loved Dan Wilson in a way that was disproportionate to his contributions on the field. Mm-hmm. And like, if I had been doing that, I would have been like Dan Wilson and you know, it's the Mariners. So like it's, that's more defensible in a number of ways. Like I said, but I had attachment to Dan, you know, mm-hmm. as a young fan in a way that would have colored my execution of this exercise but like this isn't those aren't your dudes you know no. so what's up ben do you I have a sense do you have a memory of why you picked was them? i so fond of frankie the crow Crissetti at the right. time was i going through a, a frankie Crissetti phase you like know at that age yeah, yeah i mean like 13 yeah. you know you hide yourself away in your room and you say mom don't come in and right. she opens the door and she finds you reading the frankie Crissetti book and right. it's super embarrassing for both of you yeah. yeah i was thinking maybe like well this was before I saw the sabermetric light, really. I mean, this sure. was pre-Moneyball. I was 13 years old. You were 13. I wasn't, I wasn't really reading BP yet, so I was thinking right. maybe it was like, you know, did he have a high batting average or something? And I right. was misled, but but no, not really. Like, he, he batted 245. Right. I mean, Greg Nettles was and is underrated because he had a low batting average, 248. It was sure. still higher than Frankie Crossetti's, and yeah. Crossetti was playing in a pretty high average era. So, yeah, I, I just, I don't know. I, I can't put myself in the mindset 
of the person who made this plaque. I don't recognize myself, the man who made this. Maybe you liked his name. The only thing I can think is that, A, he was still alive when I made this plaque. He lived into his 90s, and you know I love a nonagenarian. And so at the time, he was one of the last living links to the Ruth Gehrig era. So that probably added a little luster. Also, the man was a winner. Seven World Series as a player, 17 if you count his coaching years. So many that apparently he started asking for engraved World Series shotguns instead of World Series rings. He won way more World Series than he had fingers. So true Yankee. And then lastly, he was a third base coach for like 30 years. So maybe that's why I identified him with third base. Maybe my 13-year-old self said, well, why would he have coached third base if he hadn't played third base? That's the best I can come up with. But the other problem position is left field, Mm. where I went with Bob Musil. Now, again, I guess showing my knowledge of of not the top-tier Pantheon Yankees here, but how I arrived at Bob Musil, who at least was... Mostly a left fielder, but right. played played right field almost as much. He was just a corner guy kind of interchangeably. And again, this was pre-Brett Gardner, who is uh, sure. quite close to the top of the left field war list How for the Yankees. He's second. But, but Roy White, I was yeah. sleeping on Roy White, who yeah. had almost uh, double the war of Bob Musil with the Yankees. And then Charlie King Kong Keller, of course, was uh, ahead of, of Bob Musil, too. So I'm not really sure how I ended up with Bob Musil. But well, you did. <laughs> I did. And you then did. the other pick or the source of some confusion here, I had a manager at the bottom. I had Joe McCarthy, which fine. Okay. But I had two pitchers, Lefty Gomez and Whitey Ford. Hmm. Now, what confuses me is that I wrote LP and then dash hyphen Lefty Gomez, which I hmm. thought must have meant left-handed pitcher, lefty yeah. pitcher. But then Whitey Ford is next to RP, mm. it looks like to me. And it's not righty Ford. It's Whitey Ford, famously a lefty. Right. So that makes me think that RP is relief pitcher. Like I was yeah. I was putting Whitey in the bullpen or something. But then what is LP? Right. <laughs> it's long maybe, player record. Like what? <laughs> I, I, maybe, I don't, you, maybe you were just confused. Maybe you just thought that. You had a lefty and a righty, and Either, you, yeah. you were just wrong. Either I thought Whitey was a righty, which <laughs> would have been pretty inexcusable, or I wrote LP instead of SP for some Maybe. reason. Anyway, I guess those weren't the worst picks, but again, I could have done better. Whitey Ford, of sure. course, great pick and, and would have been at the top of the list at the time. Do you know Mariano Rivera has the highest baseball reference war of any Yankees pitcher? Is that <laughs> that's, true? It's that's kind of amazing as a, a reliever, almost yeah, exclusively. Yeah, wild. Yeah, and Andy Pettit is third on the list. Of course, sure. he wouldn't have been in 2000. Right, right. But in addition to Whitey, I could have gone with Ron Guidry or mm. Red Ruffing or Bob Shockey has the same war as Lefty Gomez. But look, it's not the worst to pick. Uh, Lefty Gomez, uh, he's a Hall of Famer. It's okay. But I'm just kind of confused about (laughs) whether I picked him because he was a lefty or (laughs) what I thought about Whitey and his handedness at the time. So I'm happy I found this. I am too. (laughs) I was mostly right. A look into the mind of preteen Ben. I mean, I guess you were 13, so young teen Ben is perhaps the best way to describe you. Yeah. No, I haven't yeah. really changed that much. I, I liked baseball and video games and <laughs> yeah. I, I now get paid to 
talk about and care about those things, but I would probably be doing it for free, which I was doing at the time, apparently. So I had some some misinformed opinions, perhaps, about Bob Musil and Frankie Cressetti. Good players, but uh, just didn't deserve to be on Ben Lindbergh's all-time Yankees lineup in eighth grade. You know, like we we like all kinds of things when we're 13 and then we grow Mm -hmm. out of them, you know, that seems appropriate. So maybe at the time you were moved by some specific thing that we're failing to uh, to understand. And Mm -hmm. now you would you would prioritize different things. But yeah. okay. well, if anyone has theories about what I might have been thinking at the time, please, please let me know. Okay. last one. This comes from Eric, who says. I'm surprised that the new balanced schedule hasn't come up in your discussions of the uptick in attendance. Mm. Now, this email was sent in late July. (laughs) So at the time we had been talking about the uptick in attendance. There's a reason why I'm just answering it now. But we had mentioned that attendance was up and we were speculating about is it definitely the pitch clock? Is it some sort of post-pandemic, post-post-pandemic boom? Is it something else? Will it last? Is it just the novelty value of the new rules, etc.? So Eric says, I almost always buy tickets based on who the opposition is. It would make sense to me that, for example, replacing the relentless parade of Royals visits to Target Field, A's visits to T-Mobile, and Rockies visits to Chase with novel opposition would Mm. bring more people out to ballparks. Similarly, the novelty of seeing the Yankees in Colorado and Otani in Detroit ought to be a greater draw than seeing either as opposition so many times in the same divisional cities, though I know Ben would happily take Otani as local opposition every day of the week. And yes, small market slash basement dwelling teams do still play 81 games as visitors somewhere, but it seems like their drag on attendance would be diluted under the new schedule. They might even bring long-suffering fans of those teams out to more interleague ballparks. For example, I lived in D.C. for many years and was only able to see my twins play at Nationals Park once every six years under the old schedule. That series will now be played in D.C. every other year. If this were the only series of interest to me, I'd be buying three times more tickets under the new schedule. Mm. And he proposed some possible ways that we could investigate this as a stat blast. And he said, I doubt this attendance variable can be untangled from the rule changes and the return of a more normal post-COVID, post-work stoppage season. Sure. But seems like it would be a big factor. And hopefully folks who come out for the new opposition like the pace of play and come out for more games in the future. So Eric in Los Angeles is suggesting... Maybe we were sleeping on the real reason or one of the real reasons for the attendance boost all along. It's not just that people want to check out the pitch clock or like the pitch clock or like the predictability of game times now. It's actually that we're not seeing the same teams over and over and over again with the more balanced schedule. And maybe the novelty value is bringing people out to the park. So Ryan and I were both intrigued by this hypothesis. But we had to wait for the new retro sheet release to come out, which made it easier for Ryan to crunch the numbers on this. RetroSheet has just done its uh, big data dump of the 2023 season and also earlier seasons. Shout out to RetroSheet for making so many stat blasts possible. So Ryan looked into this and he concludes, I don't think the theory holds up. And I think I agree, or at least I think it matters on the margins, maybe, but no more. So he sent all the data with a spreadsheet that I will attach. But here's his summary. From 2018 to 2022, not counting 2020, intra-league non-divisional games, so that is games 
within the same league, but not within the same division, had an attendance boost of negative 1.2% versus divisional games. So divisional games, bigger draw than same league, non-divisional games. Interleague games had an attendance boost of 7.6% versus divisional games. So interleague games, bigger draw. And so Ryan says, if we take those rates and apply them to the decrease in intra-league games and the increase in interleague games, we would expect only a 1.2% boost to attendance, whereas we actually saw a 9.6% boost. So he's saying that if we took that historical pattern, people are more likely to go see interleague games, and now there are more interleague games, and you just applied that same pattern to the more balanced schedule in 2023, it would only produce a 1.2% attendance boost, and we saw one that was much bigger than that. And he says interleague games actually got relatively less popular. Mm. So interleague games had only a 39 percent boost to per game attendance compared to divisional games hmm. down down from the previously mentioned 7.6 percent over the previous four non-covid seasons most of the 2022 to 2023 attendance boost actually came from divisional games which gained 8.6 percent attendance per game and non-divisional intra-league games which were up 10.7 percent per game so those boosts were bigger than the boost in interleague games, which was only 4.9%. So he says the attendance boost doesn't appear to have been caused by people being jazzed to see new teams. It seems to be people being jazzed for division rivalries. He also said, I did look to see if maybe attendance was just better toward the end of the year when there are more divisional games and divisional races, but that wasn't really true either. Attendance peaked in July and June and August were all better than September, the only month with notably fewer interleague games. And I guess kids being back in school. Sure. I guess overall, I think the interleague attendance boost is probably just anecdotally overstated. Since interleague games started, the all-time average boost to attendance for interleague games over divisional games is just 6%. And he concluded that most casual ball game attenders probably don't really care who they're playing all that much. They just go when they have the time and the funds. Now, my interpretation of this, so we went from unbalanced to more balanced and the split of intra-division games, intra-league, non-division games, and inter-league games, we went from 76 to 56 intra-division games. We went from 66 intra-league, non-division games to 60, and we went from 20 inter-league games to 46. Right. Okay. So we more than doubled the inter-league games. The fact that the inter-league attendance boost relative to the intra-division attendance declined now that there are more interleague games and fewer intra-division ones. That seems consistent to me with the novelty theory because maybe intra-division games are more interesting when there are four series instead of six, right? And right. maybe interleague games are less interesting when there are more than twice as many of them, even though they're coming against a greater variety of teams. However... The non-divisional intra-league games were up the most of anything, 10.6% relative to 2022, even though the quantity of those games didn't change much at all. They barely got any scarcer, and yet right. the attendance was way up, which makes me think that it probably wasn't really the rebalancing. And then given the historical attendance boost patterns for intra-league games, 
the balancing, the rebalancing that happened just didn't cause a dramatic enough redistribution of games to produce a league-wide boost of the size we saw, as Ryan said. The number of, of games that shifted from yeah. intra-division and interleague to interleague, just it wasn't big enough to produce that sort of bump. So I think there's some support for Eric's theory here in that people seemed amped to go to intra-division games more so than interleague games, and maybe that has to do with just supply and demand. But I don't think this explains all or even most. It it might explain it most a, a little bit, I think, of the attendance boost. So we're still back to, yeah, maybe it actually was the pitch clock. Maybe people really like the predictability and novelty of that. Yeah, it could it could be. It does. I mean, it matters to me as a yeah. viewer, or at least it did when I was watching one team all the time. Yeah. Then I wanted a more refreshing matchup. It was like, yeah. oh, we're playing them again. Didn't we just play them? We play right. them 19 times. That's it's too many times, right? So I guess this maybe has some implications for future realignments or schedule yeah. changes and the tolerance that people have for seeing the same matchups over and over again. But Ryan's right. I, I guess a pretty high percentage of people who are going to games are just kind of, you know, casual walk-ups or looky-loos or may not have planned it in advance or may not even right. know if it's a great matchup or not. They just feel like going to a ball game that day. They're probably not planning ahead. So yeah, I guess it's so funny to me. It's just very foreign to the way that I like I think about um even for like the Diamondbacks now that they are good I always am like who's not only what team is it but like who's pitching you yeah. know but yeah. I appreciate that my priorities and experience are maybe not typical perhaps <laughs> perhaps <laughs> not all right. A reminder, if we miss some noteworthy story about your team this year, please let us know. Email your nominations to podcast at fangrass.com. Also, one quick correction on our previous episode. Chris Hannell at one point referenced the Phillies using the most pitchers in 2023 with 44. That was actually the number of total players they used, not just pitchers. He was looking at the wrong column. And in case you were wondering, because he tweeted this too, of the 40 predictions that Meg and I and Ben and Michael made, 11 actually came true. And if a list had guessed no on all 40 predictions, they would have earned 355 points, which is a positive score, but far from the top of the leaderboard. So you can't just win that way. Finally, speaking of the Phillies, I was speaking to a Philly earlier today. I was talking to Phillies general manager and former major leaguer Sam Fold for a forthcoming story. And at the end of our conversation, as we were saying our goodbyes, he brought up Effectively Wild. And I'm just going to play you a snippet of what he said with his permission. Keeps doing the great work on the bottom. Thanks. Continue to enjoy you and Meg. So oh, appreciate um, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right. So well, keep keep it going. Don't ever give that up. I hope you never. <laughs> uh, I hope effect, effectively wild is a forever pot. Uh, it certainly seems like it has been at this point. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> what episode are you on? Now? What are we at? We're we're up to twenty one hundred and one. Oh my gosh. <laughs> later today. Oh my gosh. So uh, <laughs> you guys throw parties for milestones? Is it like getting your two thousand pit? I, uh, I don't know. I mean, I guess you, you acknowledge it on occasion on the, on yeah, the show. Yeah, we we did some. Yeah. 10th anniversary stuff but at this point we we've had so many round numbers that uh you know <laughs> we gotta act like we've been there before i guess <laughs> well i think 3000 has like a unique that's um, true <laughs> you know it's a unique number in baseball so you should at least celebrate that one okay we'll get all the three get, get like you know get wade boggs and all the 3000 <laughs> hit members to, right. to get on the pod yeah <laughs> all right 
Of course, after Sam said that, I had to figure out how long it might take us to get to 3,000. We'll be at 2105 by the end of this year. That leaves us 895 episodes away. We do three episodes week in and week out. So 52 weeks in a year, that's 156 episodes a year. 895 divided by 156. So at our current recording pace, we've got about five and three quarters years until I'm Mr. 3000. So, oh, September 2029, if I and our civilization last that long, better start booking those 3,000 hit club members now. Never going to get Jeter after I snubbed him at shortstop on my all-time Yankees lineups. Who knows what will happen between now and then. Can't promise that this will be a forever pod, as Sam put it. Few things are forever, but if you'd like to make us and Sam Fold happy by helping keep the podcast going, you can do so by going to patreon.com slash effectively wild and pledging some monthly or yearly amount to help us keep making podcasts and help us stay ad-free and help yourself by getting access to some perks. The following five listeners have already done so, Stefan Toddle, Daniel Sinner, who's a saint as far as I'm concerned. He's a Patreon supporter. It's like buying an indulgence. His sins are absolved. Rebecca Vaughn, Rebecca Fleming, and Michael Tatlock. Thanks to all of you. Patreon perks include access to the Effectively Wild Discord group for patrons only, monthly bonus episodes, including some year-end recommendations from me and Meg coming soon, shout-outs at the end of episodes, potential podcast appearances, discounts on merch and ad-free fancraft memberships, and so much more. Patreon.com slash Effectively Wild. If you are a Patreon supporter, you can message us through the Patreon site. And even if not, you can contact us via email, send your questions and comments, and your intro and outro themes to the aforementioned address, podcast at fangraphs.com. You can can rate, review, and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes and Spotify and other podcast platforms. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash group slash Effectively Wild. You can follow Effectively Wild on Twitter at EWPod, and you can find the Effectively Wild subreddit at r slash Effectively Wild. Thanks to Jordan Allen for her editing and production assistance. We'll be back with one more episode before Christmas and before the end of the week, so we will talk to you soon. Where do you go in a world of bad days? For the good days on baseball and life With a balance of analytics and humor Philosophical music Effectively wild Effectively wild Effectively wild